If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's going to be on page 898. Last week we looked at the story of Lazarus, a pretty familiar story. The rest of John 11 is probably less familiar. Uh, So to begin our understanding of this text, I want to talk about another familiar story in the Bible, and that is David and Goliath. Now, one of the more overlooked parts of David and Goliath, and is probably actually one of the central parts of David and Goliath that is often looked over, is how David and Goliath fought. Now, I want you to go back. I want you to think about the story. You've got Israel and the Philistines, and they're at war. The Philistines are a common enemy for Israel throughout a lot of its history. And Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, a giant, comes out to issue a challenge to the armies of Israel. Let me read to you from Goliath's words. This is coming from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So the idea here that Goliath actually puts out there is two men fight as representatives of their armies. And whichever one of those two individuals wins, that army will be declared the victor. Now, in one sense, this is actually a pretty smart way to wage war. I don't want to make light of war, but if you think about it, you have one guy die instead of a whole host of people dying. In one way, it makes numerical sense to do war this way. Better to have one man die than to have thousands of people die. And this is common. You see this throughout world history. This idea of two champions coming together, representing, in a sense, substituting themselves for their respective armies. Now, why do I bring this up? And what does this have to do with Jesus? David was a substitute for the armies of Israel. And today in our passage, central to understanding this passage, is Jesus as the substitute for his people. And this idea of better for one man to die than for many to perish. So we're going to look at Jesus, our substitute this morning in the end of John 11. Our big idea this morning is found in your bulletin if you want to follow along with the outline provided there. Through his death on the cross, Jesus takes our place and secures our salvation so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. So let's look at the text John 11, we're going to start in verse 45. The point one of your outline there is the witnesses of a miracle continue to reject. 
One of the neat uh, literary devices in this text is irony. And we're going to see this throughout this passage. And the first one is just that the witnesses of a miracle continue to reject. Let's look at verses 45 to 48. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So remember, last week we saw the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And this is in some ways a continuance of that story. And just as Jesus said, many people who saw that miracle placed their faith in him. That Jesus showed who he was and that he was truly sent from God and many did believe. But, verse 46... But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, there is a little bit of humor in that they're tattling on Jesus for raising someone from the dead. You don't normally tell on people for doing the good thing. And part of this works in this whole irrationality of the people who reject Christ. That they're going to get Jesus in trouble. You know, you see this with the kids all the time. They're really good at getting their sibling in trouble. They are excellent fact finders. And sometimes I only have to half punish my kid because their information was actually useful. I'm like, I need to punish you for tattling, but I'm only going to half punish you because now I know the truth. (laughs) But again, you think about the absurdity here. They're trying to get Jesus in trouble for raising someone from the dead. And in most contexts, raising someone from the dead is seen as a good thing. But in hearing what took place, we see in verse 47 that the chief priests and the Pharisees, these would make up the council of the Jewish people. This was their governing body. So if you took the judicial branch, the executive branch, and the legislative branch that we have in our country and you slammed it into one group, you would get this council, or in other places called the Sanhedrin. So that's what this is talking about in verse 47. So in light of Jesus' miracle raising Lazarus, they say, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Again, there's an absurdity here in that they, they're scheming about someone who just raised someone from the dead. But why? Why do they care? What are they worried about? What makes them come and have a special session, a special business meeting to figure out what they're going to do? Look at verse 48. They have to do something because he's a threat. And how is he a threat? Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What I want you to see in general terms is that they are more worried about their political influence 
and power, then they are believing in the promised Savior that their people have been waiting for for thousands of years. They are worried that people will follow Jesus. What's the implication? Instead of them. These are the leaders of the Jewish people. What are they worried about? Look at verse 48. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, to give historical context to it, they did have some good reason for fear. We know from history that when the Romans thought there was sort of chaos in one of their provinces, because right now, in this time in history, Israel is under the Roman rule, Rome was not, like every single empire in our history, Rome was not a nice empire. And if they thought the leaders weren't doing their job in keeping everybody calm, they would come in and do unspeakable acts of violence to those people. You are not going to get mercy and grace from the Roman army. But again, this is in great contrast with the fact that Jesus, the promised Savior of the world, has come, and they're worried about the Romans. There is a great contrast here between who do you really fear? Do you fear the government, those in authority, or do you fear the Lord? And you see the hardness of the hearts of these people who are supposed to be the religious leaders of the people. They are supposed to be the ones. They knew their Bible, what we call the Old Testament. They knew their Bible better than all of us. But still, they are more worried about their power and influence than doing what is right before God. The other way we see the hardness of the hearts, and and hopefully by analogy, the hardness of our own hearts, is on these people who tattle on Jesus. They literally were just eyewitnesses to someone being raised from the dead. One author writes, the following events show that no amount of evidence will convince those who have already determined to reject Jesus' claims. They literally saw Lazarus come out of a tomb and they won't believe. I think that this sets the scene for the good news that we're going to see later on in this text. To understand Jesus as Savior, you need to understand the darkness and the sinfulness of the human heart. The way that the human heart is presented in these opening verses is not that you need a better one, you need a new one. The Old Testament talks about how God will take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. I want you to see in these leaders and in the people who told on Jesus a great heart of stone because even in the testimony of someone being raised from the dead. Because you notice the leaders don't, they don't debate that point. Look at what they said. 
Go back to verse 47. For this man performs many signs. Notice they never debate whether the sign happened or not. They never debate the miracle. But even in that, we see the hardness of the human heart. And we can't just say, well, those are really, really bad people. (laughs) Because without Christ, you and I have that same stone heart. Before we have repented of our sin and believed in Jesus, we have the same stone heart of the Pharisees and the chief priests and the people of this story. And if we have a stone heart, it's not good enough to make it a softer heart. We need a new heart. And that only comes through Jesus. Let's continue back in the story here in our text. So they don't know what to do. They're, they're, what do we do with this guy? People are going to follow him. Rome is going to kick us all out of office and maybe kill us. What do we do? So point number two in your outline, the unbelieving priest prophesies the truth. In these verses, we see the leader of this group, the high priest, a guy named Caiaphas, steps to the forefront to lead the council. Let's start in verses 49 and 50. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, in in my research for this, there's actually historical evidence of Caiaphas, the high priest, was a part of a group called the Sadducees. They come in other parts of the Gospels. What's funny is that we have uh, descriptions of them being very rude people. And so it actually fits here (laughs) in that he stands before all of his people, all of these council, all these leaders, and he simply says to them, you know nothing at all. But then in verse 50... He gives them a plan. How do we maintain our power? How do we keep from losing to Rome and being punished by them? Someone has to die. Look back at verse 50. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So he says, let's do the math. How do we keep our power? How do we keep our influence? We kill a person. Because it's better that one guy die than Rome come in and slaughter the whole city. Now obviously, that one person here is Jesus. And Caiaphas says it's better for Jesus to die than for these other people to die and for us to die. It's better that one man die than the nation perish. Now again, like we talked about in David Glad, there's some logical sense here. We're looking at numbers. It's better that one person would die than a bunch of other people would die. But then John the narrator comes back into the story. And this is the center of this whole passage. Look at verses 51 and 52. And again, this is John the narrator speaking. 
This is not Caiaphas anymore. He, that is Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not the nation only, but also to gather into one children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him, that is Jesus, to death. John tells us, through the Holy Spirit, that Caiaphas and what he said spoke better than he even knew. And that God in his sovereignty caused Caiaphas to prophesy. Now there's some great irony here in that this guy wants nothing to do with faith in Jesus. And we are reminded of stories in the Bible like where God speaks through a donkey. If God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through an unbelieving high priest. And so Caiaphas didn't know he was prophesying. But God used this rejecting high priest to give truth to the Jewish leaders. And that in one sense, Caiaphas was exactly correct, that Jesus, it would be better for Jesus to die than for the nations to perish. But while the leaders were just thinking of their own lives and the body count, God had bigger plans. Jesus would die for the nation. Jesus would die for God's people. In fact, he wouldn't just die for God's people in Israel. John tells us that Jesus' death is to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This is John telling us, again, he's leading us that this story is going towards the crucifixion. And he's telling us through the mouth of Caiaphas what Jesus would be doing in his death. It wasn't just to calm everything down so that Rome wouldn't come in with their brutal force. No, he was dying for the people in a different way. John is telling us that the crucifixion is Jesus being our substitute, him dying so that we will not perish. The way that we talk about this in theological terms, I'm going to give you a theological term and then I'm going to define it for you. We talk about substitutionary atonement. That Jesus atones for our sins. He pays for our sins by being our substitute. His sacrifice is not just a role model sacrifice. Maybe some of you have heard that, that Jesus just shows what it's like to be really loving. And so he died to leave us an example. And that, that is true. But that's not at the center. 
What's at the center is that we as sinners, we don't need to get better. We need a new life, a new heart. We don't need to try harder. We need our sins paid for in a way that we cannot. And the only way for us to have our sins forgiven and for us to have the eternal hope that Jesus talked about in raising Lazarus, the only way is to believe in a Savior who wasn't just a teacher, who wasn't just a role model, but was our substitute, who died in our place to take our sin and to pay the punishment that our sin deserves. And it wasn't just for a few people in Jerusalem that day. No, John points us ahead to the church, to God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That because salvation is based on faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, it is not just for a few. It's not just for the people like us or the people we like. It is for the nations. Do you ever read your Bible and realize that you're the ones talked about in talking about people being scattered? <laughs> no one has really heard of America. <laughs> when the Bible's being written. Who's, Jesus and it, the disciples didn't know about America. It's true. Sometimes I think we forget that when Jesus says, take it to the ends of the earth, it's a really good thing because we live at what was back then considered the ends of the earth. Here's part of the problem. When we forget that we're the ends of the earth, we stop caring about what is now the ends of the earth. And when we think that Christianity is just a set of rules made up by a really good teacher who was super nice, and we forget that his death was a death for us, taking our place, taking the guilt and punishment I deserved, then it can be, if it's just a list of rules following a teacher, then we can just add it to any other list of religion out there. And it isn't important for our friends to hear about it because, you know, they can have their religion and we can have our religion. But if Jesus is the only substitute for sinners, before a holy God, then people truly need to hear. Jesus is the only substitute, and apart from Jesus, the nations will perish. 
Friends, we need to see that in talking about Jesus as our substitute, what we are saying is that he is the only way. There is no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved. God speaks to us out of a chief priest who wants nothing to do with Jesus. But through this priest, we see that sinful people can be reconciled to a God who loves them. Not because we got better, but because Jesus sacrificed himself in our place in my place, in your place. And we can have that forgiveness. We can have that hope of eternal life. What does he ask? He sacrificed. What does he ask of you? What is the response to the sacrifice of Jesus? Repentance of your sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Now I want to read the rest of this story of this passage because there's sort of an end note here that I think will help us understand what we're saying this morning. The third point in your outline is this. The people who seek purification will execute the one who can truly purify. Verses 54 to 57. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come up to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. John tells us in verse 54 that Jesus, he wasn't at the council meeting, but he knows to leave and go to a town called Ephraim. Why? Why would John tell us that? Here's what you need to see. The death of Jesus Christ was not brought about because of the strength of the Jewish court system. The death of Jesus, which that story will begin in the next couple chapters of John here, that holy week, that last week, those events happened because Jesus will willingly go to Jerusalem. And he will willingly be arrested. One author about this writes, No human court could force Jesus to the cross. One of the things that you need to understand is that Jesus' substitutionary death for you was voluntary. It wasn't something that snuck up on him. The devil didn't trick him into doing it. 
Jesus intentionally and willingly died for you. The other thing I want us to see in this end note to the story is that the time in which this was happening was the Passover festival. Again, this sets the scene for the last week of Jesus' life. And we'll talk more about that in upcoming weeks. But I want you to look at verses 55. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. There were ceremonial ways to prepare yourself to celebrate the Passover that you had to do as a Jew. There were rituals that we find in the Old Testament that were to be done to teach a lesson to the people of Israel about purity and about God's purity. But there's an irony here in that the people who are doing the rituals that should be preparing them for Jesus are going to be a part of the people that execute him. They're going to kill the one who can ultimately purify them of their sins. The hand washing and the ceremonial cleaning doesn't clean the heart. It was a picture of the cleaning of the heart that they needed. And the irony is, is that they want to kill the one who can actually purify their heart. The double irony is that God is going to use that death to purify them. You can't wash your heart clean. You can't be a good boy scout, good enough to clean your heart. But Jesus, in his substitutionary death on the cross, can cleanse you from all sin. Jesus is the only one who can forgive your sins and clean your heart so that you can be reconciled to the God who created you. Let me close with a couple applications this morning. Number one, do not harden your heart to the truth of Jesus. Believe in him today. Again, as we saw at the beginning of this story, the real, true hardness of the human heart. A heart that saw the miracle of resurrection and still rejected Christ. The call is true today as it was back then. Believe the testimony that Jesus did raise Lazarus, that he is our substitutionary Savior. And he's calling you to repent of your sins and place your personal trust in him today. Number two, you cannot purify yourself. Boy, sometimes we think we're hot stuff. I just need to do better. I can pull myself, I'm an American, I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. False. 
sickness of sin, the stain of sin on your soul, can only be cleansed through the sacrifice of Jesus. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And finally, Jesus as our substitute is the Savior we need. First John 4.14 says this, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. All my Awana kids should recognize that one. But how is he able to be our Savior? By dying for us, by being our substitute. One of my favorite verses, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, or the righteous on behalf of the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We cannot save ourselves like David who won victory over the Philistines so that the Israelites would not perish. Jesus, by dying and rising again, wins the victory of our salvation so that those who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you did speak through Caiaphas, even though he rejected you. And God, that through him, you spoke the truth that Jesus died for sinners. That through faith and repentance and the substitutionary death of Jesus, we can be forgiven and have the hope of eternal life. And only through the substitutionary death of Christ can we be saved. And we pray this in his great name. Amen.